Thank you for downloading this episode of our podcast. Hi, and welcome to the podcast for Solomon Staircase Masonic Lodge number 357, where we talk about all things related with Freemasonry, including Hermetic teachings, philosophy, reason, spirituality, and much more. We're located in Buena Park, Southern California. Tune in as we continue to update our podcast with informative talks and articles for Masons worldwide and those who would like to inquire within. All right, welcome to the second half of Chapter 26 of Mackey's Revised History of Freemasonry, Book 1, Prehistoric Masonry. If the reader has carefully considered the allegorical drama which was represented in the ancient mysteries and compared it with the dramatic scenes forming the principal portion of the initiation in Freemasonry, he will be at no loss to account for the reasons leading so many writers to credit the origin of the Masonic system to these mystical associations of antiquity. In fact, it has been a favorite theory with several German, French, and British scholars to trace the origin of Freemasonry to the mysteries of paganism. Others, denying the claim that the modern association should have sprung from them, still find comparisons so remarkable between the two systems as to lead them to suppose that the mysteries were an offshoot from the pure Freemasonry of the patriarchs. There is slight foundation, if any, in historical evidence to support either theory, although we must admit the existence of many things that are similar or closely akin in the two systems. These comparisons can, however, be easily explained without admitting any connection in the way of origin and descent between them. Hutchinson and Oliver are the leading supporters of the theory that the mysteries were an offshoot or imitation of the pure Freemasonry of the patriarchs. Hutchinson strongly contends for the direct derivation of Freemasonry from Adam through the line of the patriarchs to Moses and Solomon, but he does not deny that it borrowed much more from the initiations and symbols of the pagans. He unhesitatingly says that there is no doubt that our ceremonies and mysteries were derived from the rites, ceremonies, and institutions of the ancients, and some of them from the remotest ages. Lest the purity of the genuine patriarchal Freemasonry should be made foul by borrowing its ceremonies from such an impure source, he proceeds later on to describe in that indefinite manner, which was the peculiarity of his style, the separation of a purer class from the taint of the popular religion, where he evidently refers to the mysteries. Thus he says, In the corruption and ignorance of after ages, those hollowed places were polluted with idolatry. The unenlightened mind mistook the type for the original and could not discern the light from darkness. The sacred groves and hills became the objects of enthusiastic bigotry and superstition. The devotees bowed down to the oaken log and the graven image as being divine. Some preserved themselves from the corruption of the times, and we find those sages and select men to whom were committed and who retained the light of understanding and truth, unpolluted with the sins of the world, under the denomination of Magi among the Persians, wise men, soothsayers, and astrologers among the Chaldeans, philosophers among the Greeks and Romans, Brahmin among the Indians, Druids and Bards among the Britons, and with the people of God, Solomon shone forth in the fullness of human wisdom." Dr. Oliver expresses almost the same views, but more plainly. He was probably the first to advance the theory that two systems of Freemasonry had come down the course of time, both derived from a common source. These two systems he called the pure and the spurious Freemasonry of antiquity. 
the former descending without a halt from the patriarchs, and especially from Noah, and being the parent of that which is now practiced, and the later being a schism or separation, as it were, from the former and impure and corrupted in its principles, and in that tainted or soiled condition preserved in the pagan mysteries. Dr. Oliver admits, however, that there were certain analogies or similarities between the two in their symbols and allegories. His own language on this subject leaves no doubt of the nature of his views. In a note to his History of Initiation, an extended and learned work on certain of these mysteries, he says, I have denominated the surreptitious initiations earthborn in contradistinction to the purity of Freemasonry, which was certainly derived from above. And to those who contend that Freemasonry is nothing more than a miserable relic of the idolatrous mysteries, see Faber, Origin of Pagan Idolatry, Volume 3, page 190, I would reply in the words of an inspired apostle, Doth a fountain send forth at the same place sweet water and bitter? Can the fig tree bear olive berries or fig vines? So can no fountain both yield salt water and fresh. The wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, full of mercy and good fruits. James 3, 11, 12, and 17. I wish to be distinct and intelligible on this point. As some misapprehensions are afloat respecting the immediate object of my former volume of signs and symbols, and I have been told that the arguments there used afford an indirect sanction to the opinion that Freemasonry is derived from the mysteries. In answer to this charge, if it requires one, I only need reply to the general tenor of that volume and to declare explicitly my firm opinion, founded on intense study and abstruse research, that the science which we now denominate speculative masonry was co-eval, at least, with the creation of our globe, and the far-famed mysteries of idolatry were a subsequent institution founded on similar principles, with the design of conveying unity and permanence to the false worship, which it otherwise would never have acquired. No other prominent Masonic writer holds and argues for the theory of the common origin but diverse descent of the mysteries in Freemasonry, although there are many brethren agreeing with the fullest faith of the teachings of Dr. Oliver as a Masonic historian, and therefore give their assent to his opinion on this subject. Another class of Masonic scholars have advanced the theory that the speculative Freemasonry of the present day comes directly from and is a lawful and logical successor of the mysteries of antiquity. They found this theory on the very many and striking analogies that are to be found in the organization, the design, and the symbols of the two systems. These likenesses, they claim, can only be explained with any satisfaction on the ground that one is an offshoot of the other. The Abbe Robin was perhaps the first writer who advanced this idea in a distinct form. In a work on the ancient and modern initiations published in 1780, he traces the origin of the ancient systems of initiation to that early period when wicked men urged by terror of guilt sought among the virtuous for those who could plead for them with the deity. The latter, he says, retired into solitary places to avoid the taint of the growing sinfulness and devoted themselves to a life of study and to the cultivation of the arts and sciences. In order to associate with them in their labors and functions only such as had sufficient merit and capacity, they appointed strict courses of trial and examination. This, he thinks, must have been the source of the initiations which marked and made so distinct the celebrated mysteries of antiquity. The Magi of Chaldea, the Brahmins and Gymnophis of India, the priests of Egypt and the Druids of Gaul and Britain thus lived in retired places and obtained great fame by their discoveries in astronomy, chemistry, and mechanics, by the purity of their morals, and by their knowledge of the science of legislation. 
In these schools, says the Abbey, the first sages and legislators of antiquity were assembled, where the doctrines were taught, were the unity of God and the immortality of soul, and it was from these mysteries that the lively fancy of the Greeks drew much of their mythology. From these ancient initiations, the Abbey draws the conclusion that there came the orders of chivalry which sprang into existence in the Middle Ages, and certain branches of these, in his opinion, produced the institution of Freemasonry. The theory of the Abbey Roban therefore traces the institution of Masonry to the ancient mysteries, but in an indirect way through the orders of chivalry. He might therefore more correctly be classed among those who maintain the doctrine of the Templar origin of Freemasonry. Alexander Lenoir, the French scholar who made an especial study of ancient remains and relics, attempted in the most plain and thorough manner to establish the doctrine of the direct descent of Freemasonry from the ancient mysteries, and especially from the Egyptian. In the year 1814, he published an elaborate work on the subject. He begins by claiming that we cannot expect to find in the Egyptian and Greek initiations those modes of recognition which are used by the Freemasons of the present day, because these methods, which are only formal and had been sent from one to another by a mouth-to-ear method under the obligation of secrecy, cannot be known to us, for they could not have come down to us through the lapse of ages. Omitting, therefore, all reference to these matters of no real importance, he confines himself to a comparison of the Masonic with the ancient rites of initiation. He comes to the conclusion that Freemasonry and all the points that it really covers is in direct relation with the mysteries of the ancient world, and that with the exception of certain particular customs practiced by the modern Freemasons, it is evident that Freemasonry in no respect differs from the ancient initiations of the Egyptians and the Greeks. This theory has been accepted by nearly all the French Masonic writers except Rebold, who traces Freemasonry to the Roman colleges of artificers. Unfortunately for the general acceptance of this theory, M. Lenoir has it in the first place drawn his comparisons from the system of ceremonies of initiation practiced in the lodges of France, and especially from the proofs and trials of the entered apprentices degree. But the tedious ceremonies and painful trials of the candidate as they are practiced in the French Rite constitute no part of the original English Freemasonry, whence the French system had its start and were adopted as a novel change long after the establishment of the order in France by the Grand Lodge of England. Moreover, the Egyptian initiations with which they have been compared by Lenoir were not those which were actually practiced by the priest of Egypt, at least we have no authentic proof of that claim. They were most probably suggested by the imaginative details given by the Abbey Terrison in his romance entitled Sethus, in which he pretends to show the initiation of an Egyptian prince. The truth is that Lenoir and those writers who have followed him and adopted his theory have not made a comparison between the original ceremonies of Masonic initiation and those of the ancient mysteries. What they have done is merely a comparison between a recent system of ceremonies, certainly not earlier than the middle of the 18th century, and a fiction indebted for its birth to the inventive genius of a French abbey, and first set forth in a work published by him in the year 1731. As well might Mr. Turner or any other writer on Anglo-Saxon history have cited, as authentic materials for his description of the customs of the people of that age, the romantic incidents given by Sir Walter Scott in his novel Ivanhoe. Therefore, all the references of the voyages of an entered apprentice in a French lodge to the similar travels of an aspirant in the mysteries of Osiris or Isis become nothing more than the baseless fabric of a vision, which must fade and dissolve like an insubstantial pageant when submitted to the severe test of authentic historical investigation. 
The Reverend Mr. King, the author of a very interesting treatise on the Gnostics, has advanced a theory much more probable than either of those which we have just examined. He maintains that some of the pagan mysteries, especially those of Mithras, which had been instituted in Persia, extended beyond the period of the coming of Christianity, and that their doctrines and customs were adopted by the secret societies which existed at an early period in Europe and which finally assumed the form of Freemasonry. This theory is a probable one, and this is so because its main points are sustained by historical evidence. For instance, it is a fact that some of the mysteries of paganism were practiced in Europe long after the beginning of the Christian era. They were a constant menace in the opinion of the fathers of the church who feared and fought what they supposed to be their tendency to idol worship. Not until the middle of the 5th century were they forbidden by an edict of the emperor Theodosius. But a law against a common practice is not necessarily nor always followed by an end at once of the thing forbidden. The public celebration of the mysteries must, of course, have stopped at once when such ceremony had been declared unlawful. But a private and secret observance of them may have continued, and probably did continue, for an indefinite time, perhaps even to as late a period as the end of the 5th or the beginning of the 6th century. Mosheim tells us that in the 4th century, notwithstanding the zeal and severity of the Christian emperors, there still remained in several places, and especially in the distant provinces, temples and religious rites sacredly set apart to the pagan gods. That rites founded in honor of them were in the 5th century celebrated with the utmost freedom and fearlessness in the Western Empire, and that even in the 6th century, remains of the pagan worship were to be found among the learned and the officers of state. During all this time, it is known that secret associations such as the Roman Colleges of Artificers existed in Europe, and that from them ultimately sprang up the organization of builders, which the Como and Lombardy as their center spread over Europe in the Middle Ages, and whose members under the recognized name of traveling Freemasons were the founders of Gothic architecture. There is no forced or unnatural succession from them to the guilds of operative Masons who undoubtedly gave rise about the end of the 17th or the beginning of the 18th century, to the speculative order, or the free and accepted Masons, which is the organization that exists at this present day. There is, therefore, nothing absolutely unreasonable in the theory that the Mithraic mysteries which prevailed in Europe until the 5th or perhaps the 6th century may have impressed some influence on the ritual, form, and character of the association of early builders. It is equally within the bounds of reason that this influence may have extended to the traveling Freemasons, the operative guilds, and finally to the free and accepted Masons, since it cannot be proved that there was other than an unbroken chain of succession and affiliation between these various organizations. Certainly, the theory of Mr. King ought not to be rejected offhand. It may not be altogether true, but it has so many elements of truth that it claims our serious consideration. After all, we may find a sufficient explanation of the likeness and the relationship which undoubtedly exists between the rites of the ancient mysteries and those of the modern Freemasons in the natural tendency of the human mind to develop its ideals in the same way when those ideas are suggested by the same or similar circumstances. The fact that both institutions have taught the same lessons by the same method of instruction may be credited not to a direct and continued series of organizations, each one a link leading to another in a long chain, but rather to a natural and usual meeting place, coincidence of human thought. Believers in the lineal and direct descent of Freemasonry from the ancient mysteries have, of course, discovered, or thought that they had discovered, the most striking and wonderful agreement and sameness between the internal organizations of the two institutions. 
Thus we find those inclined to believe upon slight evidence have not hesitated to compare the hieroplant or the explainer of the sacred rites and the mysteries with the worshipful master in a Masonic lodge, nor to style the dedicus or torchbearer and the hierotyrix or herald of the mysteries wardens, nor to assign to the epibomos or altar server the title and duties of a deacon. That there are likenesses between them and that many of these are very curious cannot be denied. But we shall attempt before leaving this subject to explain the reason of their existence in a more rational way than by tracing the modern system as a successor to that of the ancients that we may have fallen heir to some of their possessions in ideals and in ritual. Analogies or similarities certainly exist between the ancient mysteries and Freemasonry upon which the theory of the descent of the one from the other has been based. These likenesses that remind the followers of one of their possible relationship to the other consist in the facts that both were secret societies, that both taught the same doctrine of a future life, and that both made use of symbols and allegories and a dramatic form of instruction. These analogies do not necessarily support the doctrine of descent, but may be otherwise satisfactorily explained. Whether the belief in a personal immortality was given to the first man by a divine revelation, and then lost as to the intellectual state of future generations declined into a degraded state of religious understanding, or whether the prehistoric man created but little superior to the wild beast with whom he daily fought with rude weapons for mastery, was at first without any idea of his future, until it had been, by chance, dawned upon him some more elevated intellect, and by him been revealed to his fellows as a consoling doctrine, afterward to be lost, and then in the course of time to be again recovered, but not to be universally accepted by dull minds, are questions into which we need not enter here. Sufficient it is to know that there has been no period in the world's history, however dark, in which some bright rays of this doctrine have not been thrown upon the general gloom. Belief in a future life and an immortal destiny has always been so inseparably linked with elevated notions of God that the deep and reverent thinkers in all ages have necessarily subscribed to its truth. That faith has inspired the verses of poets and tempered and directed the discussions of philosophers. Both the mysteries of the ancients and the Freemasonry of the moderns were religious institutions. Therefore, the conceptions of the true nature of God, which they taught to their disciples, must of course have included the ideas of future life, for the one doctrine naturally and surely follows the other. To seek, therefore, in this analogy, the proof of a descent of the modern from the ancient institution is to advance an utter fallacy. The two things are quite different, and while both organizations may have taught the same truths, that does not prove that one body was parent of the other. As to the secret character of the two institutions, the argument is equally doubtful. Under the dark rule of pagan idolatry, the doctrine of a future life was not the popular belief. Yet there were also some who aspired to a higher thought. Philosophers like Socrates and Plato nourished with earnest longing the hope of immortality. By such men the mysteries were first organized, and it was for instruction in such a doctrine that they were instituted. But opposed as this doctrine was to the general current of popular thought, it became, necessarily and defensively, esoteric and exclusive. Here we see the reason for the secret character of the mysteries. They were kept secret, says Warburton, from a necessity of teaching the initiated some things improper to be communicated to all. The learned bishop assigns another reason, where he sustains with the authority of ancient writers for this secret. Nothing, he says, excites our curiosity like that which retires from our observation and seems to forbid our search. Synesius, who lived in the 4th century, before the mysteries were wholly abolished, 
says that they owned the high respect in which they were held to a popular ignorance of their nature. And Clemens of Alexandria, referring to the secrecy of the mysteries, accounts for it among other reasons because the truth seen through a veil appears greater and more venerable. Freemasonry also teaches the doctrine of a future life. But although there was no necessity, as in the pagan mysteries, to conceal this doctrine from the populace, yet there is, for the reasons that have just been assigned, a tendency in the human heart which has always existed to clothe in most sacred objects with a veil of mystery. This spirit caused Jesus to speak to the Jewish multitudes in parables whose meaning his disciples, like the initiates of Freemasonry, were to understand, but which would be without their full meaning to the people so that seeing they might not see and hearing they might not understand. The Mysteries and Freemasonry were both secret societies, not necessarily because the one was the legitimate successor of the other, but because both were human institutions and both had the same human tendency to conceal what was sacred from the uninitiated eyes and ears of the profane. In this way may be explained the analogy between the two institutions which arises from their secret character and their esoteric methods of instruction. The symbolic form of teaching the doctrines is another analogy which may be readily explained. When once the esoteric or secret system was determined upon or adopted without intent by the force of those tendencies to which we have referred, it was but natural that the secret instruction should be given by a method of symbolism. In all ages, symbols have been the cipher or secret writing, an alphabet of hidden ideas by which secret associations of every character have privately limited the knowledge of their mysteries for the benefit of their initiates only. Again, in the mysteries, the essential doctrine of a resurrection from death to eternal life was always taught in a dramatic form. There was a drama in which the aspirant or candidate for initiation represented, or there was visibly pictured to him, the death by violence, and then the discovery, recovery, revival, the ascension, raising, or elevation, the resurrection to life and immortality of some god or hero, in whose honor the peculiar mystery was founded. Hence, in all the mysteries, there was the thanatos, the death or slaying of the victim, the aphanism, the concealment or burial of the body by the slayers, and the heresis, the finding of the body by the initiates. This drama, from the character of the plot, began with sorrow and ended with joy. The traditional Eureka, I have found it, sometimes credited to Pythagoras when he discovered the 47th problem, and sometimes to Archimedes when there flashed upon his studious mind the principle of specific gravity, was nightly repeated to the initiates when at the close of the drama of the mysteries they unearthed the hidden body of the master. Now the recognized fact that this mode of teaching a religious or a philosophical idea by a dramatic representation was constantly practiced in the ancient world for the purpose of more permanently impressing the understanding of it upon the mind would naturally lead to its adoption by all associations where the same lesson was to be taught as that which was the subject of the mysteries. The tendency to dramatize an allegory is universal because the dramatic method is the most generally possible and has been proved to be the most successful. The plan of the third or master's degree of Freemasonry is, as respects the subject and development of the plot and the conduct of the scenes, the same as the drama of the ancient mysteries. There is the same thanatos or death, the same aphanism or concealment of the body, and the same euresis or discovery of it. The drama of the master's degree begins in sorrow and ends in joy. Everything is so similar that we at once recognize an analogy between Freemasonry and the ancient mysteries. But it has already been explained that this analogy is the result of natural causes and by no means infers a descent of the modern from the ancient institution. 
Another analogy between the mysteries and Freemasonry is the division of both into steps, classes, or degrees, call them what you may, which is to be found in both. The arrangement of the Masonic system into three degrees certainly bears a resemblance to the distribution of the mysteries into the three steps of preparation, initiation, and perfection, which have been heretofore described. But this likeness of the one to the other, remarkable as it may at first view appear, is really an accidental sameness which in no way proves historical connection between the two institutions. In every system of instruction, whether open or secret, there must be a gradual and not a quick jump to a full understanding of that which is intended to be taught. The ancient adage that no one suddenly becomes wicked might with equal truth be read that no one suddenly becomes learned. There is indeed, as was said of old, no royal road to knowledge. There must be a series of slow, toiling steps to the desired end in every pursuit of knowledge, like the advancing ranks of an attacking army in its efforts to capture a besieged city. Hence, the latter, with its various steps, has from the earliest times been accepted as a symbol of moral or intellectual progress from a lower to a higher place. During this progress, from the simplest to the most profound secrets of initiation, from the sowing of the seed to the full harvest of the instruction whereby the mind was to be gradually cleansed of many errors, by preparatory steps before it could bear the full blaze of truth, both mysteries and Freemasonry have obeyed a common law of intellectual growth, independently of any connection of the one with the other institution. The fact that there existed in both institutions secret means of the members knowing each other presents another analogy. It is known that in the mysteries, as in Freemasonry, there was a solemn pledge of secrecy, with penalties for its violation, which referred to certain methods of recognition known only to the initiates. But this may properly be credited to the fact that other such peculiarities are and always will be attached to any secret organization, whether religious, social, or political. We shall find in every secret society that is separated from the rest of mankind, as a natural outgrowth of its secrecy and as a necessary means of defense and isolation, an obligation of secrecy and methods of recognition. Such comparisons it is, therefore, scarcely worthwhile to discuss at length. Thus, then, we have traced the resemblance between the ancient mysteries and modern Freemasonry in the following points of their likeness. 1. The preparation, which in the mysteries was called the lustration. This was the first step in the mysteries and is the entered apprentice degree in Freemasonry. In both systems, the candidate was purified for the reception of truth by washing. In one, it was a physical ablution or bath, and in the other, it was a moral cleansing. But in both, the symbolic idea was the same. 2. The initiation, which in the ancient system was partly in the lesser mysteries, but more especially in the greater. In Freemasonry, it's partly in the fellow crafts, but more especially in the master's degree. 3. The perfection, which in the mysteries was the making known to the aspirant of the true dogma, the great secret that is symbolized by the initiation. In Freemasonry, it is the same. The dogma so taught in the mysteries and in Freemasonry is in both cases the same. This perfection came in the mysteries at the end of the greater mysteries. In Freemasonry, it is at the close of the master's degree. In the mysteries, the instruction was made known to the candidate in the sacellum or holiest place. In Freemasonry, it is made in the master's lodge, which is said to represent the holy of holies in the temple. Four, the secret character of both institutions was featured. Five, the free use of symbols to teach and to remind the initiates of each organization of important lessons. Six, the dramatic form of the initiation common to the mysteries and to Freemasonry. 
7. The division of both systems into degrees or steps representing the stages of progress. 8. And the adoption by the two organizations of secret methods of recognition. These analogies, it must be admitted, are very striking, and if considered merely as accidental coincidences, must be acknowledged to be very singular. Thus we see it is not surprising that scholars have found it difficult to solve the following problems. Does modern Freemasonry succeed by a direct and unhalting line of descent to the ancient mysteries, the succession coming through the Mithraic initiations which existed in the 5th and 6th centuries? Does the fact of the analogies between the two systems be fully explained by crediting the resemblances to the coincidence of a natural process of human thought common to all minds and showing its growth in symbolic forms? We can only offer what we think is a logical conclusion. If both the mysteries and Freemasonry have taught the same lessons by the same method of instruction, this has arisen not from a succession of organizations, each one a link of a long chain of historical happenings leading directly one to another until Hiram is simply a substitute for Osiris, but rather from those usual and natural coincidences or similarities of human thought, which are to be found in every age and among all peoples. However, we cannot easily deny that the founders of the speculative system of Freemasonry, informing their ritual, especially in the third degree, gained so many suggestions as to the form and character of their funereal legend from a study of the rites of the ancient initiations if they did not indeed fall heir to them by actual descent. How long it was after Freemasonry had an organized existence that this funereal legend was arranged in final form for adoption and use is quite another matter, which will be found discussed in its proper place in this work. Whew! And thus concludes chapter 26. That was a long one. Thanks for hanging in there. Thank you for listening. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and leave us a comment. We enjoy hearing from our listeners. If you really like what you heard, share this podcast with your friends and lodge members. Visit us online at solomonstaircase.org.